Welcome to Whores Talk Horror. We're not really whores. We just like wordplay. Hello, welcome to Horse Talk Horror. I'm Sharon. I'm Melinda. And we're both super excited about this episode today. We are going to be talking about the history of the Cecil Hotel. Ooh. Ooh. This is um one of our well part a part of this history is one of Mindy's favorite obsessions, which we will get to uh, later on. But I actually just finished American Horror Story Hotel not too long ago. Finally got around to watching that. And Mindy, you just read something? Uh, Yeah, I read uh, the new book Gone at Midnight, The Mysterious Death of Elisa Lamb by Jake Anderson. Uh, As Sharon mentioned, Elisa Lamb is kind of my white whale. But again, we will get to that later. And uh, so first, we're just going to cover the sources that we used for this episode, Mindy, do you want to go through that list? Yes, ma'am. Um, there's a few. Uh, the good old Wikipedia has a list of deaths and violence at the Cecil Hotel. Um, <laughs> story from allthatsinteresting.com. The chilling story of murder and hauntings inside Los Angeles' infamous Cecil Hotel by Katie Serena. List verse 10 creepiest events that happened at the Cecil Hotel by... Cherish Merriweather, uh, the good old Murderpedia, uh, theoccultmuseum.com, uh, tranofthought.com, an article titled Cecil Hotel Beyond the Lobby Doors by Kathy Tran, uh, filmdaily.co, and lacurb.com. So not many references. <laughs> there could have been way more. I had to narrow down the list to the uh, the best of the best, but whatever. I'm ready to jump into this. I have my cold brew with um, Bailey's almond. I'm double fisting today, and I also have almond, almond, Bailey's almond, and then Ooh. I have a glass of sparkling wine <laughs> because it's Sunday. Oh, I need I need one of those. Oh, go get one. You can you girls talk. Yeah, I was just thinking I should probably get more. I have a Mexican mocha with oat milk from uh, Dollop Diner in Andersonville. What up? They're doing carry out, um, even though we are all in quarantine and they are fantastic about their carry out. They don't sponsor us in any way, but shout out to Dollop. Um, in Chicago. In Chicago. Thank you. Yes. And then um, I've got a little Pinot Gris going on the side. Because, uh, yeah, it's Sunday fun day. And also, you may hear a little bit of swearing here and there because I have a very curious cat right now who all of a sudden wants to be involved in this podcast and keeps trying <laughs> to, like, crawl Aww. on my computer. And Hi, Smidge. Yeah, what up? So now he's ignoring me because he knows I called him <laughs> out publicly. So he's pissed. He's looking. He's literally turned the other way and is showing me his ass. Thanks, Smidgen. <laughs> Love you, too. All right. So we got our caffeine. We got our alcohol. Let's let's get into this. (laughs) The Cecil Hotel and its almost 100-year history is known for many things, including connections to the famous murder victim known as the Black Dahlia. Serial killers Richard Ramirez and Jack Unterweger were known to be residents of the hotel as well. It has also been associated with many violent deaths, either by suicide, murder, or by accident. It's been a home for prostitutes, transients, and other unsavory characters, and also ghost sightings. It's the location of the now infamous and mysterious death of Elisa Lam, a 21-year-old Canadian student who was found dead inside one of the water supply tanks on the hotel roof. 
As Sharon will attest, this is one of my, I hate to say favorite unsolved crimes, but you guys know what I mean. I'm very fascinated with this crime due to the multi-layers of the mystery, but we'll get to that later. All right, Mindy, let's let's uh, get into the history of the Cecil. Let's do it. Um, the Cecil Hotel is located at 640 South Main Street in downtown Los Angeles. It was rebuilt in 1924 by hotelier William Banks Hanner. He intended it to be a destination for rich businessmen and tourists alike and chose downtown L.A. as a location due to the booming global entertainment and financial industries located there. Makes sense. Uh, It was designed by Roy Lester Smith and featured opulent Art Deco architecture. The interior would follow the Renaissance revival style with a return to classical features and beau arts ideology. The Cecil would feature the highest standard of appearance and class for hotels of its time. The hotel cost $1 million to complete and boasted an opulent marble lobby with stained glass windows, potted palms, and alabaster statuary. It stands 14 stories high and contains 600 guest rooms. The Cecil opened to the public on December 20th, 1924. Hanner had invested confidently in the enterprise with the knowledge that several similar hotels had been established elsewhere downtown. But within five years of its opening, the United States sank into the Great Depression and L.A. was hit especially hard. Before I did the research, I actually did not realize that the Cecil was once a uh, luxurious, extravagant hotel. I always thought that it was built as a place where, you know, it was affordable and transients could live for little money. And so that was actually kind of interesting to uh, to learn all that. Yeah, I think that before it closed recently, the lobby was like the only thing that was left. Well, clearly, <laughs> but the lobby still had some of that left. Yeah. And we'll actually cover that. Uh, a little bit later. So after the Great Depression turned LA's downtown neighborhood into one of the city's most impoverished areas, it is said that as many as 10,000 homeless people were living within a four-mile radius of the hotel. Main Street was renamed Skid Row, and crime rates skyrocketed due to an increase in burglars, robbers, and drug addicts, all living right outside the Cecil's doors. Due to being in the midst of a Great Depression, the Cecil could not afford to be a luxury hotel anymore. Hanner was forced to swallow his pride and give up his dream of running a grand hotel that catered to wealthy vacationers and high-powered businessmen. He dropped the nightly rates to an all-time low and greeted the chaos outside the doors with open arms. Once a destination for the affluent and expendable, the Cecil became a permanent residence to cons, drug addicts, and those facing even worse fates. To survive, it took in whatever transient soul that passed through. The Cecil clung on to the little that it had left. As the years went on and the Great Depression came to an end, the Cecil survived those turbulent times and came out still standing on the other side. Other decaying buildings that were not so lucky were being torn down all around the once prolific area. In the 1950s, Skid Row was in the middle of rehabilitation projects, and the Cecil hoped for a strong recovery. 
Instead, by the end of the 1950s, the Cecil became a low-end residence hotel. This may be due to the various suicides and mysterious deaths that had taken place at the Cecil since the 1930s. The dark heaviness of each death may have lived on in the hotel, making the sad and disturbed residents feel right at home. Mm. The earliest known suicide at the Cecil took place on November 19, 1931. W.K. Norton, a 46-year-old from Manhattan Beach who checked in just a week before, was found dead inside his room. He signed in as James Willies of Chicago, then hid in the solace of his room where he would take a fatal number of poisonous pills. In September 1932, a maid named Carrie Brown found Benjamin Dodich, 25, in his room, dead from a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. He did not leave a suicide note. In late July 1934, former Army Medical Corps Sergeant Louis D. Borden, 53, was found dead in his room at the Cecil. He had slashed his throat with a razor. Borden left several notes, one of which admitted to having a mental illness that arose from his his former term as an Army Medical Corps sergeant. Then in March 1937, a 25-year-old woman named Grace Magro jumped out of a Cecil ninth floor window, hitting a telephone pole in her fall. The wires coiled around her body so that when she reached the ground, Magro's skin was beaten blue from the impact. She later died at the now-demolished Georgia Street Receiving Hospital. Police were unable to determine whether Magro's death was the result of an accident or a suicide. The USS Virginia sailor, M.W. Madison, who was sleeping in the room with her, had no idea either. In January 1938, U.S. Marine Corps Fireman Roy Thompson, 35, who had been staying at the Cecil for weeks, jumped from the top floor and was found on the skylight of a neighboring building. Jesus. Another sailor, Navy officer Irwin C. Neblet, 39, was found dead in his room after ingesting poison. In January 1940, teacher Dorothy Seiger, age 45, ingested poison while staying at the Cecil and was reported by the Los Angeles Times to be, quote, near death, unquote. No further reports were published about Seiger's condition. Spencer, can you check really quick and just see when the uh, Great Depression actually ended? Uh, I'm just wondering, I mean, I know during the time of the Great Depression, there was a huge rise in suicides from people who lost businesses and lost. I think we're still in the Great Depression. I think so too. Well, the 20s, no, and then yeah, the well, 40s. Well, it didn't start until yeah. 29. Yeah. Okay, so what, what were the years? Until the late 1930s. When did it start? Uh, 29. Okay, 29 to the late 19- 19. Late 1930s, yeah. Yeah, so I'm wondering if a lot of these deaths were um, a result of the Great Depression. And also, there's a lot of people in the military who committed suicide at this hotel. I'm wondering if that had anything to do with PTSD or... Yeah, and the fact that L.A. is close to water, so there were probably lots of ports nearby where people would have come in, you know, like Mm -hmm. the Navy or whatever. And if they needed a cheap place to say, hey, there's the Cecil. Yeah, that's an interesting point, actually. I hadn't thought about that before. And I'm also wondering if any of the other hotels in the area also had increased 
occurrences of uh, suicide by people staying at those hotels or if this was something that was like very specific to the Cecil um, more I guess that's more research maybe because do. it was so fancy that people wanted to die in a fancy place I don't know yeah well I don't know how many other fancy hotels there were there were a lot at this point but they were in nicer areas and cost more money <laughs> yeah I think maybe I'm going to do some research about maybe some of the other hotels in the area and see if there was any sort of um strange mysterious deaths taking place there we had to take a quick break because for some reason it's 90 degrees in our condo even though it's only about 45 degrees outside (laughs) so i needed to uh change so i will be doing the rest of this episode naked yay (laughs) and if you become a patreon member you can see photos (laughs) see that's how you get the people in oh god no no, thank you. <laughs> Subscribe to our Patreon. See Sharon's ass. That's the um thousand dollar level <laughs> we need to come up with. Yeah, if you want to spend that much money, that's the thousand dollar tier to watch me do this episode naked. That w- anyways, that was what when Trump and Hillary were running for president. That's what Joss Whedon and the cast of the Avengers did, except they didn't tell Mark Ruffalo, and they made this commercial <laughs> that was like, "If you vote Democratic, you'll get to see Mark Ruffalo's dick." And then they like cut <laughs> to Mark Ruffalo, and he'd be like, "Wait, what?" And then like they'd all be the rest, like Robert Downey Jr. would be like, "That's right, full on shot," and Mark Ruffalo would be like, "Wait, I what? I did not say what." It was really funny, actually. Aww. And Hillary still lost. So what does that say about Mark Ruffalo's dick? <laughs> well, she got the popular vote. Oh, so more than 50% of people <laughs> want to see. Wanted to see. I know my mom was Mark one of Ruffalo's. those voters. So <laughs> oh, she, all right, she well. loves she loves Mark Ruffalo. Anyway. <laughs> what the hell were we talking about? What? What? Yeah. Uh, oh, the Cecil. Right. Here we go. <laughs> The name of the episode. So, in September 1944, Dorothy Jean Purcell, who was 19 years old, was sharing a room at the Cecil with her boyfriend, shoe salesman Ben Levine, who was 38. Purcell, who had apparently been unaware that she was pregnant, went into labor. Purcell later testified that she did not want to disrupt her sleeping boyfriend, so she went to the bathroom where she gave birth to a baby boy. Thinking the baby was dead, Purcell threw him out the window, and he landed on the roof of an adjacent building. Oh, my God. Yep. Purcell was charged with murder. Three alienists, which is the term used for psychiatrists back in that day, testified that Purcell was mentally confused at the time of the incident. So in January 1945, she was found not guilty by reason of insanity. There is a lot to unpack with that story. That could be a whole episode. Yeah. Oh my God. That's that's a movie. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That, that, like, aside from Elisa Lamb, is one of the most fascinating stories about this, I feel like, about the Cecil. I... Not yeah. the least of which is she was 19 and he was 38. Yeah, that's a story in and of itself. I want to know what was going on with them. Well, you know, not. I mean, it's not <laughs> in in 1944 too. I have an idea. Spencer. I think that was probably less weird in 1944. Yeah, actually, that might be true. I was gonna say when I was 19, I kind of dated a guy who was in his 30s. So. No judgment on my part. Well, your boyfriend's 70. <laughs> it was the sequel, too. So, like, that's where this shit would happen. Like, you know, shady hookups. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, she, she was, I don't think it was just a shady hookup, though. It, I mean, unless she was pregnant from someone else, but it sounds like her boyfriend was the father. 
They have an interesting story, needless to say. Yeah, I love how she didn't want to wake him up, so she went in the bathroom. Yeah. Jesus. I know. I, I don't even want to know the reason behind that. It sounds like it was probably an abusive situation. But anyways, uh, Mindy. Uh, okay. So in 1947, Elizabeth Short, dubbed by the media as the Black Dahlia, was rumored to have been spotted drinking at the Cecil's bar in the days before her notorious and to date unsolved murder. Uh, the Cecil is often confused with the Biltmore Hotel, where Elizabeth Short actually stayed. I do think that the rumor she was involved with the Cecil Hotel has persisted and continues to... <sighs> That was Spencer. That thank, was not me. Thank you, me. Spencer. Yeah, I could kind of tell, oddly enough. I don't know what that says wow. about our friendship, but I could tell that, that was That was Bailey. All right, let me Ooh, try that sentence again. Give me a cigarette after that one. I feel about five pounds lighter. <laughs> hey. The Cecil is often confused with the Biltmore Hotel, where Elizabeth Short actually stayed. The rumor she was involved with the Cecil has persisted and continues to add mystery to the already creepy-ass hotel. Yeah, well, you know what? Her story in and of itself is is a very bizarre story. So, yeah, I, I, you know, kind of like to imagine maybe she was at the Cecil. What was the name of that podcast where the, the family talks Root about Root of that? Evil. Root of Evil. Which is probably one of my favorite podcasts of all time. Listen to it if you haven't heard it. I've started reading that guy's book, the guy who, who like turned in uh, What's-His-Face at that tv show was about the guy they think that killed her i'm blanking on the name the doctor yeah um uh george hodel thank you and the guy who turned him in like his grandson his or, son was the one was it his son okay yeah i, I think s- it was his son i read part of his book and it was insufferable i couldn't make it through it because it kind really? of was about how smart he is to have figured this out and so i stopped but i'm a huge fan huh. even though it's fiction of the james elroy Black Dahlia book, which is fantastic, which I recommend to anybody. But that's besides the point. Yeah. Interesting. All right. So in November 1947, Robert Smith, not lead singer of The Cure. Thank you. (laughs) Who is 35. He died after jumping from one of the Cecil's seventh floor windows. On October 23rd, 1954, Margaret Brown, age 55, jumped from the window of her seventh floor room and landed on top of the Cecil's marquee. A ladder was needed to reach her body. However, Margaret Brown was not Margaret Brown. Authorities later found her real name to be Helen Gurney, a woman from San Diego. She had traveled 124 miles to die under an alias. A man named Melvin Hinckley was taken to General Hospital soon after. He apparently went hysterical after witnessing Gurney's death. On February 11th, 1962, Julia Frances Moore, aged 50, jumped from the window of her eighth floor room and landed in a second story interior light well. Moore did not leave a suicide note. Among her possessions were a bus ticket from St. Louis, 59 cents in change, and an Illinois bank book showing a balance of $1,800. That's a lot in those days, kind of. Yeah, Spencer, do the math and see what $1,800. One, two, three, one, to carry the five times. Uh, I can look it up Back in 1962, what would that have been? So now we are like kind of well past the Great Depression here. Yeah. So these suicides are a little more um, bizarre 
because right, exactly. there's, yes. there's not really a clear reason for any of these people. Agreed. That's, a, that's over $15,000 today. Wow. Yeah. Right. Not a small amount of money. Right. Huh. Right. Yeah, it's, it's just crazy how many people traveled to this hotel to commit suicide. Yes. Yes. Either they were drawn there or, I don't know, maybe they figured the reputation. Good place it's to... Part I of the don't mystery. Know. Well, let's keep going and maybe we'll find out. Um, so skip ahead a few months. On October 12th, 1962, 27-year-old Pauline Otten shouted at the top of her lungs, enraged over a heated argument with her estranged husband, Dewey. When Dewey stepped out of their Cecil hotel room, she dove out of the ninth <laughs> floor window. You, sorry. You, you kind of said that like Moira. Hotel room. <laughs> but I love it. I love it. We should say everything like Moira because she's the best ever. <laughs> Little baby crows. <laughs> Oh, my God. <laughs> I sometimes feel like I'm living with Moira. Anyways, <laughs> I, I can continue. She dove out of her hotel room. Now I'm going to say it like that all the time. <laughs> all right. Let me say that sentence again, and I'll try and sound somewhat normal. Um, I don't want to rip off Catherine O'Hara. The legendary. Right. The legendary. We bow to you. <laughs> we bow to her. I would never even dare try and imitate. Okay. When Dewey stepped out of their Cecil hotel room, <laughs> shit. You did it. No, you did it fine. We're just laughing. <laughs> I don't know. I heard it a little bit. Maybe that's because I was thinking about it. Just keep going. Just keep going. On October 12th, 1962, 27-year-old Pauline Otten shouted at the top of her lungs, enraged over a heated argument with her estranged husband, Dewey. When Dewey stepped out of their Cecil Hotel room, she dove out of the ninth floor window and plunged to her death. By chance, she landed on top of a 65-year-old pedestrian named George Giannini, who was out for his evening walk. Both were killed instantly. Police initially thought that both Otten and Giannini had taken their lives in a suicide pact until it was realized that Giannini had his hands in his pockets and his shoes on. The impact of the fall would have popped his shoes off his feet. His death was just a matter of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. That story is nuts. Did you watch the um, the Cecil, it's what is it, three-part documentary that was on Amazon and I think you can find it other places. I watched it on Amazon, but there was one episode about Elisa Lam. Yeah. There was one about just, I think, a bunch of the mysterious deaths. And this was one of them. Yeah. And for the longest time, police could not figure out what happened. It was kind of crazy that they finally were like, oh, she just happened to fall on this Man, guy. Like, what are the chances? Yeah. I mean, what a, what a bad day what a bad way to die <laughs> yeah this was one of my other like the other one of the other infamous stories that i knew about the cecil that like blows my mind like just walking down the street all of a sudden you look up i can't even imagine i probably not even that yeah. it was probably instant like you're walking and then then ne next thing is nothing it's just done mm -hmm. hopefully it was painless i would imagine yeah this next story though is actually a really really sad story but it's it's also a little heartwarming at the end. Um, on June 4th, 1964, a hotel worker discovered 65-year-old woman Pigeon Goldie Osgood, a retired telephone operator. She was dead in her room. She had been raped, stabbed, and beaten, and her room had been ransacked. 
Osgood was well known around the area and an and had earned her nickname Pigeon Goldie because she overstuffed her pockets with packets of bird seed each morning and then headed down to Pershing Square, a 10-minute walk from the Cecil. She spends her time there feeding the pigeons and even saying sweet melodic tunes to the birds. Pigeon Goldie was also known for always donning her distinct Dodgers baseball cap. The people of Los Angeles appreciated her kindness and unique reputation as being the old bird lady of their town. Near her body was the Los Angeles Dodgers cap that she always wore and a paper sack full of bird seed. Hours after her murder, Jacques B. Ehlinger, I think that's yep. how you say it, who is 29, was walking through Pershing Square, the area where Osgood would go to feed the birds. He was wearing bloodstained clothing and was arrested and charged with Osgood with Osgood's murder, but was later cleared of the crime. Osgood's murder remains unsolved to this day. Um, but I I didn't write this in there. I thought I I added it, but I I remember reading that after her death. I think that the people who remembered her they would go down to the park and they would feed the pigeons for her and they kind of had like a memorial for her because she was so well known and like well loved in the community which I thought was really sweet yeah I think I've heard that too and I agree that yeah oh yeah that is a sad one Um, On December 20th, 1975, a still unidentified woman, approximately 23 years old, jumped from her 12th floor window onto the Cecil's second floor roof. She had registered at the hotel on December 16th under the name Allison Lowell and was staying in room 327. Okay, here we go. American serial killer, rapist, and burglar Richard Ramirez is probably the most famous resident of this Cecil. He murdered at least 13 people in California between 1984 and 1985. While growing up in El Paso, Texas, it was said that his father was given a fits of rage and beat him. When he was 12 years old, his cousin, who was a veteran of the Vietnam War, showed him pictures of Vietnamese women he had allegedly raped, tortured, and killed. The following year, Ramirez was a witness to his cousin's fatal shooting of his wife. He moved in with his sister and brother-in-law, who is an obsessive, quote, peeping Tom, who took Richard along with him on his nocturnal exploit. So nice. He started using LSD and also took an interest in Satanism. While in school, he took a job at a local Holiday Inn where he used his passkey to rob sleeping guests. His employment abruptly ended after a hotel guest returned to his room to find Ramirez attempting to rape his wife. Yeah, that'll get you fired. Although the husband beat Ramirez senseless at the scene, criminal charges were dropped when the couple, who lived out of state, declined to return to testify against him. Around this time, Ramirez began breaking into homes, eventually dropped out of high school and moved to California in 1982 when he was 22 years old. In June 1984, Ramirez committed his first known murder, raping and stabbing a 79-year-old widow, Jenny Vincow, in her apartment in Glassell Park, Los Angeles. Most of the murders took place in the Los Angeles area sometime during his more than a year-long killing spree, it was said that he stayed at the Cecil. 
All he needed was a place to sleep and easy access to the drugs he needed, and that was also far from the eyes of authorities. The Cecil seemed like the perfect place. Around the corner, he could pick up whatever drugs he craved from the neighborhood drug dealer and get a date from any of the prostitutes roaming 8th Street. For $14 a night, wow, Ramirez lived in a dingy room on the 14th floor of the Cecil, free to do whatever he wished. Hotel clerks noticed his strange character. He kept to himself and rarely spoke to others. The staff did not question his behavior as they had seen worse people come through the Cecil. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Ramirez's reign of terror finally came to an end on August 31st, 1985. One of his rape victims was able to give a description of both Ramirez and his orange Toyota station wagon. A teenager later identified the car from news reports and wrote down half its license plate number. The stolen car was found on August 28th, and police were able to obtain one fingerprint that was on the mirror of the vehicle. The prints belonged to one Richard Munoz Ramirez, who was described as a 25-year-old drifter from Texas with a long rap sheet that included many arrests for traffic and illegal drug violations. Two days later, his mugshots were broadcast on national television and printed on the cover of every major newspaper in California. The next day, Ramirez was identified, surrounded, and severely beaten by an angry mob in East Los Angeles as he was trying to steal a car. Police- That's the best capture ever. For real. I, I love that vi- vigilante justice where all these people were like, no, we're not going to let you get away. Like, that's the fucker that's been going around killing everyone. And right. Police had, to, awesome. police had to break up the mob to prevent them from killing Ramirez. <laughs> I don't mean to laugh, but hey, he killed a lot of people and raped a lot of people. Uh, mm-hmm. By the time his trial started, Ramirez had fans who were writing him letters and pr- paying him visits. Ew. So fucked up. Beginning in 1985, Doreen Leoy wrote him nearly 75 letters during his incarceration. In 1988, Ramirez proposed to Leoy on October 3rd, 1990. Oh, sorry. Let me do that again. Beginning in 1980. Fuck. Sorry. You you can start there. 1980. Fuck. Hey, that's what we can do while we're quarantined. We can just start writing love letters to serial killers in prison. I hadn't thought of that. I don't know of any Just serial kidding. killers I want to write to, though. <laughs> All the good ones are dead. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so bad. All right, Minnie. <laughs> Back to Richard Ramirez. Um, in 1988, not 1985, in 1988, Ramirez proposed to Leoy, and on October 3rd, 1996, they were married in California's St. Quentin State Prison. Hey, there, there's someone for everyone, right? Right. That's a long engagement. Right? I know. Uh, Leo eventually left Ramirez. Huh, I wonder why. Um, (laughs) On September 20th, 1989, he was found guilty of 13 counts of murder, five attempted murders, 11 sexual assaults, and 14 burglaries. And holy crap, on November 7th, 1989, November 7th is my dad's birthday, he was sentenced to die in California's gas chamber. Ramirez died of complications according to B cell lymphoma. According to no, not according oh, to. Shit. I looked at a different thing. <laughs> Wait, here's a quick comment from B cell lymphoma. What do you have to say, B cell lymphoma? Uh, according to me, uh, Richard Ramirez was a great guy. 
I killed that. I killed that motherfucker. <laughs> These all have to go on a B side at some point, please. Thank you. Yes. I have no idea what just happened. This is all being left in. We're not editing any of this out. Oh, I don't know what you're talking about. Okay. That, I'm fine with that too, actually. I think it's funny. <laughs> okay. Um, Go ahead. Okay. Ramirez died of complications secondary to B-cell lymphoma at Marin General Hospital in Greenbrae, California on June 7th. 2013 at the age of 53 he had been on death row for more than 23 years at that time jesus Mm, yeah they um he was in uh american horror story hotel and the actor who played him did not look like him at all who was it i think i don't remember but there was a different actor who played him in American Horror Story 1984 and that actor looked exactly like Richard Ramirez like it was scary how much that actor looked like Richard Ramirez and we watched 1984 before we watched Hotel so when I was watching Hotel I was like oh I was like this guy he just yeah he was kind of he was like way too plump I guess to be Richard Ramirez because Richard Ramirez is really he's no he's like rail thin he's like super skinny and he has these like super high cheekbones like he kind of looks like a vampire and the guy that was playing him in hotel looked more like um what's his name from La Bamba uh who's who's the Um, singer of Richie Valens Richie Valens yeah I was gonna say he looked more like Richie Valens than um Richard Ramirez so huh what a weird (laughs) what a weird comparison I, yeah, my brain works that way. <laughs> okay. So another well-known serial killer and rapist who spent time at the Cecil is Johann Jack Unterweger, a.k.a. the Vienna Woods Killer from Austria. He was born in southeastern Austria and was the illegitimate son of an American soldier and an Austrian prostitute. Born in 1951, he was raised among hookers and pimps, growing up wild with an unpredictable temper. He was a chronic truant by age of nine and logged his first arrest at age 16 for assaulting a prostitute. Over the next nine years, he accumulated 16 convictions, mostly for sexual attacks on on women, and spent all but 12 months of that time behind bars. He was briefly freed in 1976. He was charged with murder after he bludgeoned another streetwalker with an iron bar, then strangled her with her own brassiere. In court, he admitted to his crime, telling the judge, I envisioned my mother in front of me, and I killed her. That just is one of the most popular (laughs) excuses of every serial killer. If I had a nickel. You'd have a lot of fucking nickels. But this guy, this story is so bizarre. So sentenced to life imprisonment, Unterweger followed, I don't know why I kept using his last name instead of Jack. (laughs) I'm just going to call him Jack. It's much easier. Sentenced to life imprisonment, Jack followed the lead of certain American convicts. He reinvented himself as an author of important literature. Over the next 14 years, he produced various poems, plays, short stories, and an autobiography that made him the toast of Viennese Cafe Society. Influential Australians petitioned the nope. government. Austrians. Austri- no, no, it was Australians. He was n- renowned and loved worldwide. Um, okay. <laughs> Influential Austrians petitioned the government for his release. That is insane. Can you imagine like people being like 
signing petitions to free Ted Bundy. Right. I was going to say Roman Polanski's one thing, but he didn't like kill people. <laughs> like that's a little Muzzle different. People. Jesus. Mm-hmm. No, but they actually uh, petitioned the government for his release and the quote rehabilitated killer was paroled on May 23rd, 1990. Uh, he told the press that life is over now. Let's get on with the new (laughs) because serial killers can just stop killing and just go on and be completely rehabilitated and become productive members of society. Right. Let's get on with the new killings. I mean, the new life, the new. Yeah. That life is over. Let's get on with the new meeting. I'm going to go overseas and kill other people there. Spoiler alert. All right. (laughs) Overnight, Jack became a fixture on television talk shows. I actually I need to look for video and see if there's um old videos somewhere of these because this this story just blows my mind it's so if there's not video youtube you're not doing your job it's so bizarre yeah so he uh was a fixture on television talk shows posing as a model of prison rehabilitation, enjoying most favored guest status at high society cocktail parties. Money Files celebrity and Unterweger sported designer clothes, drove a Ford Mustang with the license tag reading Jack One, and acquired a blonde girlfriend the same age as his last victim. Hmm. Unfortunately, Jack's new life was a charade, no fucking shit. Right. (laughs) Austrian police report that Unterweger killed at least six prostitutes within his first 12 months of freedom. In June 1991... Jack got a chance to take his show on the road. An Austrian magazine commissioned him to go to Los Angeles to write about the differences between the U.S. and European attitudes towards prostitution. Winging off to L.A. with his lover just six years after Ramirez was caught, Jack checked into the Cecil. He met with local police, even going so far as to participate in ride-alongs to the city's red light districts. Those ride-alongs were revealed to be scouting missions to find his next victims. He wrote a couple of articles focusing primarily on Hollywood prostitutes, but Jack performed more sinister acts during his time in L.A. Three sex workers, Shannon Exley, Irene Rodriguez, and Peggy Booth, were beaten, sexually assaulted with tree branches, and strangled with their own brassiers by Unterweger. He was safely back in Austria by the time Interpol officers, sorry, Interpol officials recognized descriptions of the L.A. killer's modus operandi in February 1992. An Austrian SWAT team raided Unterweger's Vienna apartment, but their suspect was already gone. He was embarking with his teenage lover on a jaunt that would take them through Switzerland, France, and Canada, and back once more to the United States. Along the way, he paused for telephone calls to the Austrian media, alternately taunting police and proclaiming his innocence. A trail of credit card receipts led manhunters to Miami, Florida, where Unterweger was captured without resistance. In custody once more, Unterweger was accused of killing 11 prostitutes since his release from prison. Six in Austria, three in Los Angeles, and two more in Czechoslovakia. The Czechs didn't want him, but Austria and the United States squabbled over jurisdiction. Jack's homeland ended up winning, and Austrian officials 
agreed to try Unterweger for the five international murders as well as the six committed on their own soil. Extradition was thereby approved and Los Angeles authorities packed up their forensic evidence and they shipped it across the Atlantic. His trial was delayed for nearly two years. The proceedings finally began on April 20th, 1994 and lasted for two months. Unterweger was eventually convicted on nine counts of murders and acquitted on two others. The judge promptly sentenced him to life imprisonment in maximum security, but Unterweger had the last laugh. At 3.40 a.m. on June 29th, jailers found him hanging from a curtain rod in his cell. The drawstring from his sweatpants looped around his neck. Several audio cassettes were recovered from his cell, but their content has never been divulged. I'm so curious to know what was on those cassettes, number one. And honestly, I'm surprised that they were never released to the public, considering that the public actually embraced him is kind of this almost like Paris Hilton type of fucking serial killers. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you know, it's weird. I don't remember what it was. It wasn't the American murder mystery special about DeCecil, mm-hmm. but I swear to God, I just watched a special that talked about this guy, but I don't think they used his name and I'm trying, it's drive me crazy to think of what it was that I just watched. But yeah, either he said something crazy that like they just don't want people to know that's so awful or I don't know, but it, it is very odd that after all this time, those have not been made public. And he also got off way too fucking easy. Oh, uh, yeah. Suicide. For sure. All right. So on September 1st, 1992, an unidentified male was found deceased in the alley behind the Cecil. Authorities believe the descendant either fell from, jumped from, or was pushed from the hotel's 15th floor. Wait, that is not right. There's only 14 floors. (laughs) So that's why it was weird. Yeah. (laughs) That's... It's one of the reasons why it was weird. <laughs> Maybe there was 15 floors. Let's go back up to the top. God damn. Yeah, there's just a lot of information here. And it is true that like that's been the problem with Elisa Lamb too is that like there's so many conf- there's so much conflicting information about the hotel. There's stuff that was hidden. There's you know, so it is hard to find accurate mm-hmm. info. I know there were 14 no. floors, but I No. <laughs> that was and that was it. I just went back to the beginning and, and double checked. Yes. No. Okay, okay. So we're going to say he was pushed from the hotel's 14th floor, <laughs> although I'm not sure how they knew if they weren't even sure who this person was, what floor they thought he came from. Honestly, it could have been the 13th. Right. Who knows? Right. Good question. The L.A. County Coroner's Office placed the dece- decedent. Yeah. Yeah. Place the decedent's age at 20 to 32 years of age. The decedent's true identity has never been established. All right. So that is going to do it. That is the entire list that I was able to find of all the murders up until 92. From 92 until 2013, I didn't really see anything. And I'm not sure if that's because the hotel was closed for uh, that amount of time or or if you know things just kind of turned turned around for the better but this next story I'm sure all of you have heard and since this is Mindy's white whale I will let Mindy tell this story um yeah I actually don't think the hotel closed until after 2013 
Um, so okay. maybe things were just quiet, but like you said, like it's really difficult to find any sort of accurate information. And I have ideas as to why that might be, but that's, we'll get to that. So speaking of, like Sharon said, buckle up, this is my white whale. I might do a, a deep dive on this some other time, but right now we're going to stick to the Cecil. One of the most mysterious cases to have taken place at the Cecil Hotel involves the death of 21-year-old Canadian student, Elisa Lamb. An avid blogger, she had decided to take what she called her West Coast solo tour to California from Vancouver, where she lived in 2013. On January 26, 2013, she checked into the Cecil Hotel. Originally, Lamb was assigned a shared room, but following complaints from Lamb's roommates about strange behavior, she was moved into a solo unit on the 14th floor, which was usually reserved for folks who actually like lived at the Cecil, not guests. Um, Lamb contacted her parents in British Columbia every day while traveling. On February 1st, 2013, Lamb's parents did not hear from her and called the LAPD, then flew to Los Angeles to help to search for her. The hotel staff who saw Lamb on the day she disappeared said she was alone. Outside the hotel, Katie Orphan, the manager of the nearby The Last Bookstore, recalled seeing Lamb her last day. Orphan says she was outgoing, very lively, very friendly. While getting gifts to take home to her family, Orphan told CNN Lamb was talking about what book she was getting and whether or not she what she was getting would be too heavy for her to carry around as she traveled, Orphan added. Police searched the hotel to the extent that they legally could. They searched Lamb's room and had dogs go through the building, including the rooftop, but the canines were unsuccessful in detecting her scent. Quote, but we didn't search every room, Sergeant Rudy Lopez said later. We could only do that if we had probable cause, unquote, to believe a crime had been committed. On February 19th, 2013, the naked body of Lamb was found inside one of the 1,000-gallon water tanks on the hotel roof. Her decomposing body was discovered by a maintenance worker in one of the rooftop water tanks after guests complained about low water pressure and water that, quote, tasted funny. Some said the water would come out black before clearing. Her clothes were floating in the water near her. It took the Los Angeles County Coroner's Office four months after repeated delays to release the autopsy report which reports no evidence of physical trauma and states that the manner of death was accidental. But the truth is no one knows how she actually got into the water tank. Video surveillance footage taken from inside an elevator shortly before her disappearance showed Lamb acting strangely, pressing multiple elevator buttons, hiding in the corner of the elevator and waving her arms wildly, causing widespread speculation about the cause for death. After the elevator video was released, many theories arose about Lamb's death. One of my favorite rumors we'll get to, but one aspect that's not a rumor is the video released to the public appears to have been edited and the time code obscured the playback rumor to be sped up. We'd be remiss if we didn't mention that Lamb had bipolar disorder for which she was prescribed at least four medications, including an antidepressant, a bipolar med, and a medication for ADD, attention deficit disorder. 
toxicology reports from her autopsy came back showing some traces of at least two of her prescribed medications in her system, but not all of them. However, no illegal substances or high alcohol levels were said to be in her system. Cause of death was eventually ruled to be accidental drowning with Lamb's bipolar disorder playing a significant factor. Guests at the Cecil Hotel supposedly sued over the incident, and Lamb's parents filed a separate lawsuit later that year. The latter was dismissed in 2015. There still remains a lot of questions surrounding Lamb's death. How did she get onto the roof of the Cecil Hotel? The area was closed to guests and was accessible to hotel employees via an fire escape ladder and a locked alarmed door, both on the 14th floor. Any attempt to force entry should technically have triggered an alarm. Perhaps Lamb climbed the fire escape to reach the roof, but the climb was treacherous and Lamb was last seen in the surveillance footage and eventually found without her glasses, meaning climbing the fire escape would have been exceedingly difficult. Besides, someone would have noticed her, or would they? Cecil residents claim that the rooftop was often known as a hangout spot for both employees and residents alike. And as a quick Google search will show, many fascinated by the Lamb case traveled to the Cecil after her death and posted videos of themselves easily accessing the roof with no alarm and no trouble whatsoever. Okay, so how did Lamb get in the tank of water? Once on the roof, the four by eight foot cylinder tanks were accessible by a separate ladder and covered by heavy lids, which would have been hard to close from the inside. In his book, Gone at Midnight, The Mysterious Death of Elisa Lamb, Jake Anderson interviews several Cecil residents on the condition of anonymity who claim hotel staff often targeted young women, especially out of towners, reportedly stalking and even entering guests' rooms with malintent. Additionally, since 2013, experts have studied the infamous surveillance footage and feel that the tip, just the tip, sorry, (laughs) of a shoe can be seen at one point before an edited portion, leaving Anderson, among others, to speculate that not only was someone following Lamb in the video, Side note, she'd posted to her blog in the days prior to her death about, quote, creepers she'd encountered following her throughout her trip, but that a person could have quite possibly been a Cecil employee who, having seen Elisa alone, possibly recognizing her mental instability, targeted her. This would explain how, in the surveillance video, the elevator doors never close until Lamb exits, not to mention how she could have accessed the roof without notice. However, one of the creepiest rumors to persist is that she died as a result of playing, quote, the elevator game, a paranormal urban legend akin to that of Bloody Mary that claims to take the player to another dimension. Fueling this speculation is that in the aftermath of her disappearance and murder, her Tumblr kept updating, specifically a final post showing a world inside a light bulb, a la a snow globe. Realistically, Lamb's vlog continued updating based on pre-scheduled posts, or whoever had Lamb's phone, which was never found, was posting what was in Lamb's draft folder. Creepy, either way. There's seriously tons more to this case, and as Sharon will tell you, I could go on for days about it, but it's 
a fun Reddit or internet rabbit hole to fall down, so do yourself a favor and give it a Google. There's a conspiracy as to why the LAPD acted the way they did, a tuberculosis test that may bear relevance, even a Japanese film, Dark Water, later remade into an American film by the same name starring Jennifer Connelly that has one too many similarities to the Lamb case, but was made years before it happened. Honestly, we may never know what or who really happened to Lisa Lamb, but her last stop was the Cecil Hotel, and that only adds to the location's existing mystery. Have you rewatched the video to see if there is the tip of someone's foot that you can see in the elevator? It's very brief. They've sent it to like photo experts. Many people have, including this Jake Anderson. Um, mm-hmm. I can see, so like there's a point apparently in Spencer, you might look at it and be like, oh, hell yeah. But there's apparently a point where people are like, oh yeah, there is for sure an edit there. Um, It's very hard to detect, but what is for sure is that the time code is completely obscured. Like you can't read it at all. And you can see it before and after? Or is the time is the time code obscured throughout all the videos, or is it just like a portion? Because it's it's been a while since the whole video. It's obscured throughout gotcha. the whole video, and that's um, kind of been noticed. And I think Jake Anderson, one of the main things that like brought him to this conclusion of it could be a hotel employee is that that footage came from the surveillance at the Cecil. So like, mm-hmm. who edited it? I doubt it was the cops, or maybe it was the cops. But the question is why. Would it be edited? Some people think it's it's speeded up so that her hand movements look extra creepy where if you slow it down, like there's all sorts of stuff, but that's the, t- the edit and the time code thing was noticed right away. And the question is why and who would edit the footage and obscure the time code and why, what would the reasoning be to do that? And did you, did they compare it to other security video that they found where they were able to see on other days or other Mm. months or whatever that you can see a time code funny you should ask that there wasn't any none they had no other security footage of anyone over the uh, preceding weeks days months whatever that was the claim at the time i could be wrong there could be other stuff that's been unearthed well no not just about her just in general yeah just in general not about her but if if they pulled a random day like a month before i mean usually they only keep footage for what is it like three days or something i don't even know so from what i've seen research wise in terms of the cecil surveillance it's shady at best I believe that when they looked for other foot, they tried to find other footage either of Eliza or other people, and there wasn't much available. There's a which again, there's a lot about this case that really is questionable, including how some of the cops treated it. Um, so I honestly don't know if they compared it to other Cecil surveillance footage, but part of me feels mm-hmm. like because they found it a few days after she was reported missing my guess is that the Cecil probably did not have much to provide I I have read that they while they were open they didn't talk about they would refuse to talk about this case to anybody and they were really shady about it to begin with so Mm. um I really don't know what other footage from the Cecil looks like um if any exists 
but interesting. it's just yeah it's weird because it's like why would anybody obscure it why would anybody edit it yeah well, we could obviously go on and we on really about could. this case <laughs> but we're not going to do that now but yes maybe in the future we can do more of a deep dive into that but I would have to say besides knowing who killed JonBenet Ramsey this is probably the case that I would say is also like my top who who did it like what the fuck happened yeah after reading Anderson's book I do sort of think that it might have been an inside job that there might have been nefarious and this is totally me just surmising but um there might have been some nefarious hotel workers that like saw a good target because also why was she moved to the 14th floor after her roommates complained that was a floor that was supposedly kept only for residents of the hotel so they moved yeah. up there. That's where the footage was where that that you can easily Google. There's a version of it on YouTube. I don't think it's the original version, but it's you get the point. You can Google it and see it. It's creepy and weird. But that's where that footage comes from. She's on the 14th floor and she exit on, exits on the 14th floor. And I think it's totally possible that there could have been a shady hotel worker that targeted her. And or a resident because I mean we'll we'll get that in a second because um, okay, yeah. actually we actually have some reviews from people who oh that's right at, at the Cecil but I think the 14th floor was actually the floor that they say that Richard Ramirez stayed on mm. the whole thing is haunted as fuck though so whether or not she was running from a ghost or a resident or an employee I mean any of those can be possible. Yes, from- exactly. It's the Cecil. All of that is possible. <laughs> All right. So the the very last story, there was one other case after um, the what happened to Elisa Lam. On June 13th, actually, there's probably more than one, but this is the only one that I found. On June 13th, 2015, the body of a uh, 28-year-old male was found outside the hotel According to an assistant manager of the hotel, the man was not a guest and could have been an intruder. Some conjectured that he may have committed suicide by jumping from the hotel, although a spokesperson for the county coroner informed the LA Times that the cause of death had not been determined. Hmm. So once again, yeah. And who knows, honestly, all the previous cases that we read, how many of those were actual suicides and how many of those were murders or maybe just an accident, you know, right. Having a smoke outside your, you know, you're leaning out the window. Maybe you lean a little too far. Who the fuck knows? But yeah, so much mystery surrounds this hotel and every murder or death that has taken place there. So yeah. And accident or not, it is just weird that like it all happened at one place, (laughs) which I I'm really curious to know, like, are there any other hotels in the area that have even like a fraction of the amount of deaths that have happened? Yeah. As, as what has happened at the Cecil. Um, So the Cecil now is closed. Right. As, I think we mentioned earlier, but so what happened basically after um, Elisa Lam, um, or actually, actually, bleh, actually, 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 <laughs> actually, when Elisa Lam stayed there, it wasn't even the Cecil Hotel anymore. Right. It was rebranded. Right. Rebranded. Rebranded. Mindy, do you want to uh, talk about what happened from the time 
the hotel went from the Cecil to the Stay on Main? Yeah, man. In 2011, the Cecil was rebranded the Stay on Main because what better way to like shift shady behavior away from like, you know, <laughs> your hotels just change the name. No one will know. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. Although the, the marquee in the front, I think, still said the Cecil Hotel. Right. I think it might still just because it's like a historical landmark kind of thingy. I could mm-hmm. be wrong on that. Um, in t- 2014, the hotel was sold to New York City hotelier Richard Bourne, not of the Bourne identity, uh, for $30 million, And another New York-based firm, Simon Barron Development, acquired a 99-year ground lease on the property. Wow. Um, an article from Soapboxy from December 12th, 2019 speculates that Stay on Main may have officially closed in 2017. Uh, from an article in Curbed Los Angeles from September 2019, Matt Barron, president of Simon Barron, said he was committed to the preservation of the architecturally or historically significant components of the hotel, such as the Grand Lobby, but his company plans to completely redevelop the interior and fix the, quote, hodgepodge work that had been done in more recent years. Beyond renovating rooms, the developer also plans to add (laughs) a rooftop pool, gym, and lounge. Bad taste. Uh, Work is expected to be completed by October 2021. So you can go online and find pictures of the Cecil or the Stan Main, whatever you want to call it now. I think... We're just going to call it the Cecil Mm -hmm. because that's what people are most familiar with. But the lobby actually does look really, really nice. But if you see pictures of the rooms, oh, my God, they're fucking disgusting. Like I said, I think the lobby was like the only thing that remained from like the original construction. Yeah. And I also think that's how you trick people to staying at your hotel because they walk in and they're like, oh, what a lovely lobby. They pay for a couple nights probably non-refundable go up to the rooms like shitholes with um wallpaper falling off the walls and cockroaches crawling everywhere but let's get off of all the the murder death all the horrible things that happened there and let's read some of the um some of my favorite reviews that I found on Yelp and it kind of surprises me how many people stayed at this hotel without knowing the history of it. There were so many reviews from people who were like, yeah, I checked in this hotel and it's a total fucking shithole dump with no air conditioning. The staff was extremely rude. Yeah. And oh, by the way, I did a little research and It's a fucking murder hotel. It's hilarious how many people were unaware of that. Well, when I first heard of Elisa Lamb, I I heard about it on a different podcast, and it was like a comedy podcast, and they were saying, did Yelp not exist in 2013? (laughs) Right? But to be fair, I mean, if you're traveling by yourself and you don't have a whole lot of money, I don't know, I personally probably would have ended up in that area and been like, yeah, pass, but who knows so let's get to these reviews Sharon would you want to take it away yeah I'll read the first one so this one comes from my birthday September 4th 2016 we came in knowing that this wasn't going to be the Ritz even knowing that beforehand couldn't save this place from being awful first and foremost the manager all caps on manager the manager that checked us in Kipkit something with a K was a total dick 
I get that there are probably a lot of junkies and weirdos staying here, but that doesn't entitle you to talk down to a prepaid customer. The bed? I feel like if I pull the sheets back, it's just going to be a stack of cardboard underneath. I feel less rested after spending a full nine hours on it than if I had just stayed up doing meth with everyone else on our floor. Speaking of which, you can hear every door slam on this floor, the floor above, the floor below, in intricate detail. There must be a lot of angry ass junkie staying here because someone slams a door approximately every 11 seconds around here. It's very telling that the one asshole who left this place a four-star rating did so because he managed to squeeze 10 people into one of these crappy rooms. I feel like there's a lot of that going on around here. Overall, I can't recommend it, even knowing it was going to be a fiasco. If you've got to stay for cheap downtown, do yourself a favor and stay at the Mayfair. Have as many crackheads at around the same price. Wow. <laughs> Um, I think it goes without saying all these reviews we're going to read all one star because you cannot give zero stars on Yelp. But Mindy, do you want to read the next review? Speaking of that, um, this is dated June 4th, 2015. If I could give this place a negative zero, I would. <laughs> a negative zero. Yeah. That's not that's not a thing. Uh, they changed the name to Stay on Main, which was formerly known as the Cecil Hotel which was formerly known as the Murder Hotel at one point. My girl and I had a really weird experience there while we slept there one night, and our reservation was for five nights. We checked out the next day. After we, <laughs> after we checked in, we got to our room, quickly took a shower, and got ready to meet with my family. I remember leaving the window wide open because there was no air conditioner in the room. When we got back to the room around 2 a.m., the window was slightly opened with a handprint on it. And I noticed next to the TV, there was a black handprint. I was spooked, but too tired, so slept anyways. During the night, I kept tossing and turning. Horrible sleep. My girl thought I kept playing with her ear, which I wasn't. Before you, oh. Yeah. Before you decide to book your stay here, look into the history. I'm sure you wouldn't want to stay there. <laughs> Uh, and if you go on Yelp, they actually have a picture of the handprint on the wall. Oh, Jesus. Fucking creepy, man. All right. This one comes from 1214 of 2017. The service was around the clock. They even stand at the end of your bed and watch you sleep. Oh, God. The tap water is more like flat cola, but still the light. But still delightful in a cup of tea. Only if you add a few more sugars than you usually would. The hotel runs its own activities, such as hide and seek with the room furniture, and you would sometimes wake up in other rooms. Overall, a rather good experience. Okay, that might be my favorite. I have no idea if that... I'm assuming this was just someone being an asshole yeah. and it was just a joke, but well done. Yeah, right? <laughs> well done. Okay. And if that was a serious review, wow. Right? I know. So here's another one from uh, June 24th, 2017. I am so glad this place is closed now. That's not a good way to start a review. <laughs> My friend and I booked a room for the night back in 2015-ish because we had to be at a convention bright and early the next day in downtown L.A., when we got there, it was so sketchy, we had to park in an alley, and there was an elderly homeless lady crouched down on her knees near the corner of the alley, 
As we passed by, she mumbled something in a different language. We ignored her because it was dark and scary and we had a lot of luggage with us. Then she started screaming at us and it seemed like she wanted us to follow her or she wanted to deter us from going into the hotel. We shrugged it off and checked in. They put... They put us on the 14th floor at the very end of the hall. Not good. God damn it. (laughs) The room was... In Richard Ramirez's room. (laughs) The room was okay considering the price we paid. There were like seven different bolts inside the door. God. Which was really weird and creepy. Yeah, no shit. My friend and I kept getting the chills. The AC was not on. And these weird vibes. But neither of us mentioned anything until after we left. Finally, we go to bed and we both wake up to what seems like a minor earthquake, which is common for L.A., so we pay no mind to it. Suddenly, the ceiling lights, the ceiling fan turn on. The fan was going at an unusually rapid speed, and I immediately started bawling. We get up and turn it off. We hear knocks at the door, and no one was there. At this point, I'm terrified and can't sleep, so I start doing some research on the place Turns out there was a demon summoner on the 14th floor. Murders, ghosts, demons, suicide, etc. I wake my friend up. We grab our things and leave. We went to the lobby and told the receptionist what happened. And he acted like we were crazy. And as soon as we turn around and start walking away, they start laughing as if this was common. Then we were walking out the door. The security guard told us, you guys don't have to leave. The ghosts here are nice. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I felt so relieved as soon as we walked out of that place, and I hope no one else ever has to go through what we went through that night. Word in the street is that the hotel is being remodeled and will open again soon, but unless they come in with a priest, bishop, father, pastor, monk, (laughs) Buddha, pope, etc., I would not stay here even if you paid me. The good thing that came out of this experience is that I truly learned a lesson. I do my homework and thoroughly research places before booking any reservation. Holy shit. And that is the moral of this entire episode, people. Right. Do your fucking research. I know we can't really stay anywhere right now, but when we're allowed to travel again, do your research. Yelp exists for a reason. Hell yeah. Wow, that was a good one. I tried to actually find some ghost stories on the Cecil and I couldn't really find anything about any sort of paranormal experiences. I think that was a good one. I'm going to have, well, I mean, that was a Yelp review, but as far as like a whole, um, like a website or something like dedicated to official stories. Yes. Ghost stories. The one thing I will say about the Jake Anderson book about Elisa Lamb, he did, um, like I mentioned, he talked to some former actual residents, like not just, you know, like some of the people that were brave enough to actually live there. Uh, And it sounds like they don't want to talk about stuff for fear of retribution, Hmm. which leads me again to think that, I mean, clearly the staff must have been shady. Yeah. It it must have taken advantage of the situation. Like, you know, weird shit's going on. Let's let's see what we can score off guests. I don't know, but that's just my summation. So who knows? There might be stuff out there and people just are too scared to say anything. Yeah. And if you're bored, go to Yelp and go read the reviews. I mean, there's hundreds of reviews for this place and that was just a handful, but there is also a lot of photos too. There is a lot of doors that did not have locks at all, or the locks were completely broken. Um, 
Another thing, which I don't know if a lot of people are aware of, was that the rooms didn't have bathrooms. You had shared bathrooms, which sounds, I mean, honestly, that's is being like a, a germaphobe and also someone who doesn't really like being around people that I don't know. Um, sharing bathrooms with strangers while on vacation sounds like, that's like kind of my worst nightmare. And pictures of some of these bathrooms, I mean, they were moldy filled with cockroaches just disgusting and sharing bathrooms with people that you know are basically super shady you know math addicts and who knows rapists murderers staying there like it's just all around horrible situation but you could spend hours reading through the Yelp reviews everyone basically mentioned how rude the staff was which I don't blame them you know for the most part you don't want to work at a place like that and deal with the clientele that you have to deal with. And I'm sure they have the craziest stories. I wonder if there's a book out there somewhere of just like stories from the staff at the Seesaw. Yeah, one of them should write one. Regarding that whole bathroom thing, I think the point was you don't like sharing a bathroom with anybody. Not even let you. Al- right, not even me, <laughs> let alone gross people. Well, I mean, and there's yeah. one there's it's there's one thing to be said about like a hostel in Europe, but we're, this is not that kind of situation. I think the Cecil tried to like make itself into that kind of environment for a while. Oh, we're sort of like a hostel in LA, but it was more like a meth addict. We've all seen hostel. It, it was more like a meth addict uh haven than a hostel, really. Sadly, it sounds like And also they started shutting the place down to tourists. Like if you wanted to go there just to check out the lobby, a lot of people, a lot of people who didn't even stay at the Cecil would give uh, one star reviews on Yelp because they were like, I just went to the Cecil to check out the lobby because of the history and the security guards were questioning me are you staying here and if I you know if you said no they were basically like get the fuck out of here yeah one star I don't know how you can rate a place (laughs) based on the fact that you're not even staying there Um, but I can see that there's so many fucking shady ass people staying there anyways they don't want a bunch of people coming in like creeping around just taking pictures of the lobby so I get that but and if they are truly being creepy the hotel staff like I could also see how they don't want to draw more attention to themselves if you mm-hmm. know they don't want police attention or whatever so i could see it both ways but it's closed so nobody has to stay there right now thank god yeah although if they ever do reopen and make it this kind of like luxury place it sounds like they're trying to make it like the ace hotel yep. down the street with a rooftop pool and which bar isn't and bad shit. taste a rooftop pool i'm just gonna say it bad taste i'm sorry well they need to get rid of the water towers but it's la rooftop pools i think are pretty common so yeah i don't think i'd ever swim in it though just knowing the history (laughs) i don't think i would still ever even stay there no and i remember when i first told you about the elisa lamb case you were like we should stay there and i was like no we shouldn't and i think i sent (laughs) you to go link to the hotel and you were like yeah never mind (laughs) yeah i didn't i didn't realize how right (laughs) disgusting it was um so there are some cultural references um as i mentioned uh, this was the inspiration for American Horror Story Season 5 Hotel, uh, which was also partly based on the Murder Castle by H.H. H. Holmes in Chicago as well. I think they kind of blended those two together for Season 5. Uh, the hotel is also an inspiration for Barton Fink, the movie Barton Fink, which I didn't realize that. I didn't and, either. Um, I'm going to have to watch that again. 
um, now that I, I know more of the backstory of the Cecil. And also on March 27th, 1987, the band U2, they're a, a small band out of Ireland. I don't know if you've heard of them. <laughs> they uh, performed an impromptu live concert on the rooftop of a one-story building on the corner of 7th and Main in downtown LA, right next door to the Cecil Hotel. The performance with the hotel featured as the backdrop was filmed and commercially released as the music <gasps> video for the song Where the Streets Have No Name. No. So, yeah, I need to go back and rewatch that. I had no idea. I'm totally going to Google that shit when we're done with this. Do it. Do it now, Spencer. Pull it up. So that's all we have on the Cecil. So that was really, really fun research. And I think I have to do more research now and see if any other crazy shit happened at any other nearby hotels. And I mean, it's downtown LA, so I'm sure they ha- there has been. But I'm curious about, you're right, like the extent of... Oh, f- Fuck yeah. Sorry. Spencer just pulled up where the streets have no name. And like right next to Bono's head is a huge, it's the marquee that says the Cecil. That's fucking crazy. I'm totally going to pull that up when we're done recording. Yes. Everyone go check out the video for where the streets have no name. Fucking weird, man. All right. So I think that's going to do it for this episode. I think it is. Do you want to carry us out? Yeah. Thanks for listening, everybody. Um, If you're able to, we know these are tough times, but if you're able to, please subscribe to our Patreon. Um, If you want to have early access to episodes, hear exclusive episodes and receive cool gifts. Uh, If you go to... See me naked while I record. Hey, a thousand dollars a month is a good deal. I have to pay more than that. <laughs> if you want to spend two thousand dollars a month, you can see Spencer naked. What? Oh, it's two two thousand is too low. It's higher. <laughs> uh, if you go to Horse Talk Horror on Instagram, you will find links to our streaming locations and Patreon. Please be sure to check us out on Twitter and Facebook, and email us at horsetalkhorror at gmail If you want to tell us a ghost story about the Cecil Hotel or about anything else that you might have had a ghost interaction with oh my god uh something if any of you have ever stayed at the cecil oh my god please 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 write to us yes we want to hear your experience please, please please but even if you have not stayed at the cecil and you have a ghost story about anything or something creepy or just want to say that you love us please write us we love you too also just hope that everyone is staying safe yes and um making it through these really really hard times and if you want to watch something really funny or I should well funny but also heartwarming I've been watching every Monday I think John Krasinski releases some good news um there's four episodes now I believe so probably the fifth episode will be out tomorrow which is the 27th um because we are recording this on the 26th but have you watched any of his Some Good News videos, Mindy? No. Oh, my God. It's it's amazing. I mean, he's super amazing and talented and I, funny. I, and say that, they've na- done say that name again. Some Good News. Uh, John Krasinski. Okay. Oh, John Krasinski. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, from The Office. Yeah. Um, or but A Quiet he, Place. Ooh. Or A Quiet Place, yes. And A Quiet Place 2, um, which he's directing, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so or directed, I think it's done. Um, but anyways, he every week he has like it's like 15, 20 minute news show that he does from his home office. Sometimes his wife joins him. Yay. His 
wife is Emily Blunt. Emily Blunt. And um, they just have these stories from all around the world of people doing these amazing things to help each other and make other people smile and laugh. And it's super heartwarming. And of course, I like cry happy tears just watching it. it just it's so good to see some good news <laughs> because we're just constantly surrounded with all the fucking horrible news that's going on in the world yeah and there really needs to be a news channel that only talks about the good shit to remind us that there is more good in the world than bad even though uh you don't see that and i recommend mindy you watch some of the videos there's there's one video where they had the um entire cast of hamilton perform a song for this young girl who was supposed to go see the show but couldn't because obviously broadway is closed down and they last week they did a virtual prom and had like the jonas brothers (gasps) and um who else did they have uh chance the rapper Uh uh-huh uh uh, there was a few. Uh, Billy, Billy Eilish. Billy Eilish. I love yeah. her. Uh. All these people um, singing and performing in their houses, and they showed videos of of all these kids who were supposed to go to prom this year but couldn't in their homes with their families, all dressed up and dancing and having fun. It's just, it's fucking good to see that shit. That's amazing. People are doing good to bring joy into the world, and we're trying to find that. Even though we like our creepy shit, we like to find the happy <laughs> the happy shit too. So yeah, yeah. All right, so yeah, check that out if you need something positive in your life. And as always, thanks, thanks for, for getting, getting creepy, creepy with, with us. us. Sharon, do you want a beer? Uh, oh my god.